Hello, ladies and gentlemen, well, and welcome to the Coast to Coast Combat Hour. I'm your host, Matthew Hawkins, along with my co-host, Ed Carbajal, and on a weekly basis, we plan to bring you the biggest news and interviews in the world of combat sports. Ed, earlier on a uh, Sunday morning, got a special guest. Uh, how you doing? I'm good. I'm actually excited to speak with uh, Mr. Daly, uh, Arthur Lee Daly here. He's got a book uh, that he's going to have coming out in the fall. Uh, it's about the history. It's called The Fall of uh, History of Pride Fighting Championships. Mr. Lee Daly, how are you, sir? All the way from Dublin. Thanks very much, guys. Yep, all the way from Dublin, Ireland. Um, I've got a slight cold, so uh, I don't always sound this deep, um, but I guess it's good for radio. So, yeah, thanks very much for having me. No problem. So, uh, I mean, this was kind of a unique find for me. I, I, I had to tell Matt in the middle of the day after we started following each other on Twitter, I, your book just popped up at me. And I feel bad that there's there's 13 days left for the for the Indiegogo. I'm like, I wish I found it sooner because me and Matt, almost every episode we've recorded for this podcast, we mentioned something about Pride Fighting Championships. I mean, I, if you look, I'm wearing. I mean, for I know people on the audio version won't be able to see it, but I, I put on my Pride Fighting. This is ordered direct from Pride when they were still afloat, like from Japan. Wow. Oh. And uh, <laughs> and uh, Matt's got all his Pride stuff in the background there, so we're. We're really excited to talk about somebody that took two years of his time to uh, research and interview folks uh, associated with the promotion. I don't know if Matt wants to jump in. And I mean, I, I, I would imagine you guys are going to go back and forth a lot because uh, we're just such big fans of Pride and, and everything that, that they've done over the years before they before they had to shut down. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember the days of uh, sneaking on a buddy's computer before I had the Internet and uh trying to find any information I could about, you know, just hearing the rumored events from Japan and seeing all the names. I mean, at the time, uh, basically when you had Gracie, Hoist Gracie kind of name started floating around again, it became something that I, I became hugely inter interested in, in, in 1997. Uh, Lee, what, uh, what was it about pride that made you, uh, made you want to write a book about them? Um, well, I think you guys are, um, you know, you, you, you kind of hit it on the head there, Matt, you know, when it, it very much took me back to the early days of my fandom, um, you know, and, and how I got into Pride was I came across it through a tape trading network back um, based off the sort of old Japanese pro wrestling tape trading um, when I was a teenager. And um, it really was such a different time, you know, and I think um, you had to go out of your way to, to try find stuff like Pride. And that was that was what um, that was what I think really attracted me to it was just how sort of crazy and exotic it seemed, you know, and um, looking back at it at the time, you know, um, and this is one of the major themes in the book too, you know, Pride was the premier mixed martial arts organization for, you know, pretty much most of its existence, I think towards the end, obviously there were things that sort of started to uh, defray it in terms of um, being, being that organization, but in terms of the biggest fighters, the best fights, the most exciting fights, um, you know, I don't think by any measure, really, you could say that Pride wasn't the wasn't the biggest, um, you know, more or less from its infancy up until up until it sort of it died about a decade after it was founded. So for me, in terms of my personal motivation for the book, I mean, I'm a fan like you guys, you know, and I think, um, you know, for me, when I kept seeing that there was no sort of comprehensive history of the promotion, that kind of was something where I assumed, okay, maybe at some point somebody will write it. But at a certain point, I just decided, well, you know, why not me? Um, I've written sort of uh, sports sports columns and, and written on other topics before, so it was something that I felt I could tackle and, and tackle well. And that's the thing as well to talk about the Indiegogo and this thing is, you know, I think 
I am asking sort of the mixed martial arts community to take a bit of a leap of faith. But one thing I will attest to is I think the passion that, that I have and, the, you know, all the fans have for, for the promotion comes out in the book. And I think that's, uh, that's something I'm personally willing to give my, my guarantee and my, uh, my, my promise that when people get their hands on the book, they will, they will see that it's a very high quality product. So did you uh, have a hard time getting in touch? I know you have interviews and you got to speak with Boss Root and Stephen Quadros, the, <clears throat> the guys that are pretty much uh, known as the voices of Pride, along with Moro and a bunch of other people. But like, did you have a hard time getting in touch with them? How did you, how did you arrange the interviews? I mean, were they difficult? Were they open? How, how was that whole experience? Well, I, I can't say enough nice words about about Stephen and um, Boss. You know, um, just couldn't be nicer guys. Um, Boss gave me an hour of his time and. Um, was very open to it, um, and and Stephen as well. <clears throat> Stephen actually was an email interview, but he still like answered everything like really comprehensively, and um, you know uh, they were they were really awesome. Yeah, look, it was a challenge getting access. Um, you know, I think somebody who's worked on and been a journalist for years sort of maybe would have had more of the context that I had, but I, I sort of was pretty determined again to to make it a decent project. And also, part of it forced me to maybe talk to people that I think you know maybe people wouldn't expect. Um, People like Minoru Suzuki, who founded Pancrafts before, um, you know, we were one of the forerunners for Pride. Mm-hmm. Um, people like Eric Paulson, obviously involved in Shudo, another one of the, the, the forerunners of Pride. And I think there's an entire book there that could be written on, on each of those promotions in and of themselves. And, um, you know, that's uh, that's really kind of the approach that I took, you know. And the other thing to say as well is, even with those interviews that I did have, I went to pains to look at the existing interviews that they'd already done, the existing um, articles, because there is quite a few good ones, I think, that have been done throughout the years and decided to try cover some fresh ground. So there's some really interesting stuff there. I think one of the interesting things that I managed to catch was about um, the, the Mark Coleman fight um, against uh, Takata, where, uh, you know, I think Coleman at, at one or two points admitted that the fight wasn't maybe on the level. I think he, I'm not sure of his exact stance now, but I think he has, you know, he, he's not as keen to talk about it maybe as he had been in the past. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think it's, I think it's understandable. Um, but, you know, Boss actually told me and, and um, something that I think I hadn't seen before because he did talk about it in Joe Rogan was there was actually a fax sent that um, co- said that the fight would be a work. Um, mm. So I don't know if they kind of, um, you know, because this isn't their very early days, I think, when it was yeah. they were kind of they they uh they were promoting in a certain way and um yeah that's that's kind of what happened so yeah just a little stuff like that i think there's enough little sort of tidbits in there along with building from the existing um articles books that have been written i think building a very a very comprehensive story and yeah i'm, I'm pretty proud of it i think in that sense yeah one of the you know things that comes up when you when i get into conversations with other mma fans and usually i'm defending pride um while it existed it was you know i love the ufc but you know, the pride was the spectacle that I looked forward to every six, eight weeks or so when it, when it would, when it would air, um, was the, was the fixed matches. Now we know historically, most people talk about the, the, like you said, the Coleman Takata fight. Um, I believe there might be one or two other ones that are, that are kind of known, uh, usually involving Takata. Um, the other, the other big one was, um, Kyle Sturgeon against Takata. So Kyle Sturgeon was a guy who, who trained with chemo. Um, he had never had a fight before that. He's not had a fight since. And if you look at the fight, um, I think it's fair to say like there's one point where he knocks down Takata and then backs away to the far side of the ring. And, you know, it's it's very much not on the level. And I think the other one, I think, um, is um, Ogawa and uh, I can't remember the name of his opponent, but that's the other one I think that, that's largely seen as maybe as not being on the level. Um, but, sir, I have more to say on that, but, but please go ahead. Sorry, Matt. 
Yeah, no, I, I mean, I was kind of going to ask you, I, you know, because I always bring up the fact that there was also, you know, pretty much known a couple fixes in, in early UFC as well, um, or at least a thrown fight, um, Macias and Tektaroff at uh, UFC 6, uh, Mark Hall, Don Fry, Ultimate Ultimate, um, is pretty widely known as a, as a work, at least, you know, I trained with Mark Hall and he, he explained the situation to me shortly after the time. Um, Fry, Fry doesn't admit it, but I think that's because Don Fry is Don Fry and uh, pretty stuck in his ways and, and stuff like that. But, um, you know, and then, and then they had the Vitor uh, Joe Charles match, which was basically decided that they weren't going to punch each other. And it became a grappling match when, it was obviously signed to be a MMA fight. Um, was there anything else you came across? I, I saw recently someone claiming that the uh, Crow Cop uh, Dos Caros uh, fight was actually a work when when he got blasted and people claiming he had a blood packet in his mask and stuff like that. I, I thought it was ridiculous because no one yeah. would ever agree to take a head kick and a, a straight shot from Crow Cop. So <laughs> you know, I, I could see a reaction to that one. But did any did you come across anything else that that might have looked fishy or I, I just always get interested when, when people bring up that you know that to hold it against pride when pretty much every organization that came about in the nineties had had some moments of shadiness that you know, and, and it seemed to me, like you said, Pride was the most open about uh, about it as all the other organizations, considering it came from the pro wrestling world. Yeah, well, uh, well, I'll preface this with, with one thing, which I think is people are very caught up in a in a, a simple binary of it's either a fix or it's a shoot, and and actually that ignores the vast different amount of things you can do to favor what I would say like is have a certain outcome, right? Um, for instance, you can have pro wrestling matches where the outcome is known, but, you know, the guys are going to hit each other full force. You can have a mixed martial arts fight where obviously it's pretty much on the level. You can have one. And, and this is where I think the interesting stuff with Pride comes about. And this is fairly well documented is things like, um, you know, telling one guy um, that he would, you know, he would be fighting a certain opponent in six weeks time and then telling his opponents two weeks out that you're fighting this guy, you know, and obviously having to prepare and cut weight and do all this sort of other stif- different stuff at short notice was a real, a real significant, that's a real significant difference, you know. Uh, something like Pancras was pretty interesting because um, there, you know, both Boss Rutten and Frank Shamrock kind of admitted that, you know, look, there were certain gentleman rules that applied and also they admitted that there were certain fights maybe where, uh, and again, this comes back to the subtlety of how many different things you can do. Um, Frank Shamrock said, you know, there's guys he fought that he likes to think that he beat, but he's not necessarily sure that he did, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so with something like Dos Caras Jr., I mean, like, here's the thing, right? If um, uh, Dos Caras Jr. Um, or Alberto Del Rio, as he's also known, or, or Alberto El Patron, I think is his current moniker is, like, at the end of the day, if you put those two into a pure shoot fight, pretty likely someone like Crow Cup would beat him anyway. And and that comes back to, well, what is the intent of the organizers there? It's probably just the same as it would have been if they'd worked the match anyway, right? Like, this is a guy who he's going to likely beat. So, you know, I think that that whole debate needs to really kind of, um, you know, people need to acknowledge that there's a whole spectrum of stuff that can happen. Um, and also the fact that within professional sports, I mean, allegedly there's a World Cup uh, match that was fixed. Um, you know, there's allegedly a lot of different dodgy stuff that goes on a lot of different sports. So I think that, um, and again, one of the, this is one of the themes of the book is, UFC kind of has managed to make its money and make it sustainable and turn itself into um, a four billion or seven billion, if you believe um, Dana White's latest uh, uh, comments. Uh, business off the idea is a legitimate sport because it separated itself out from WWF and so on and so forth. Um, but 
if you look at it, really, I think what, what happened with Pride was it was entertainment mixed with sports. So mm-hmm. I think it's probably fair enough to call it sports entertainment in that sense. And for me, Josh Barnett put this pretty well, I think, when um, he uh, talked about the CM Punk fight. You know, for me, I- I'm not always that concerned. I wouldn't say, obviously, you know, I do want things to be on the level. But when it comes to kind of an entertainment spectacle and this kind of stuff, that's kind of what we come for. That's kind of why we enjoy it. And really, that's why, as much as we might bemoan some of these fights, that's what we enjoy too. So I think I'm a little more at peace with myself than maybe the average uh, MMA fan is over that, over that kind of stuff. What about the, um, I mean, I don't know if, if the book goes into it because there's obviously a lot of accusations about as far as like uh, testing for drugs and stuff. And I remember actually one of the special features of the DVDs had a, a boss going backstage with the guys uh, urine uh, in cups on the table showing that they do test and stuff like that because that was something they, they had to uh, defend themselves against uh, when they were still afloat. Um, does, does your book touch on any of that? Yeah, it does. Yeah. I mean, this is a topic where I'll have to admit, you know, most of it's based on, and, and again, coming back to, you know, what I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. It's most of it's based on stuff that's in the public record, you know, um, and there was testing, for instance, um, where they would do tests. Um, some of them, for instance, I can't remember who the fighter was actually, but they did say like, you know, that, that they weren't, they did take urine samples, but they weren't necessarily handled in the proper way. Again, like, as we've seen, like, there's really, so many different ways to even if you do test for the test to be you know a certain way or, or what have you and look i think it's fair to say that yeah i mean there wasn't maybe the most strictest of, of organizations with regards to drug testing uh, frank craig actually puts it pretty well in the book where when he's talking about what sort of one of the factors that kind of meant that the pride fighters maybe didn't do as well in the ufc as they had done in pride was that different testing regime yeah. because even if you are testing um, for instance, if you tell everybody, well, you're going to, we're going to test you on fight night, people couldn't cycle on or cycle off. But if you have a UFC, um, and even before the USADA regime, I think it's fair to say the UFC did have, and the other commissions did have a more stringent uh, test regime, having to change uh, what you're doing, uh, mm-hmm. severe, you know, severely affects your performance. Um, and I think we saw that as well, like, uh, remember in 2013 when um, TRT was, there was sort of the exemption of TRT were gotten yeah. rid of, we, we saw that change too. So, look, I think it's fair to say that Pride overall did not have the most stringent of testing, even where it did test. And for a large amount of time, I think initially, like if you see in the Smashing Machine, the Mark Carey documentary, yeah. um, you know, they say that we're not going to drug test you. It's actually said during the during the the rules meeting. So, um, yeah, I think that whatever regime they eventually did put in place, I think it's not uncontroversial to say it, it maybe wasn't as stringent as as you saw the testing rules and those kind of things we see now. Yeah, from what I understood, they mainly would test for like recreational drugs more than anything, um, and, and kind of let the performance enhancing ones slide by. Um, I, I I do think that the it's kind of a change in history though when people you know kind of think about. You know, the UFC didn't really have much drug testing either. I mean, they didn't really start it as far as I can really remember until, you know, it became legal in Vegas uh, in 2001. So that was already about four and a half years or so, five years into Pride uh, of their 10-year existence. Um, And then, you know, the first drug test I can remember failed is uh, UFC 36 was Josh Barnett against uh, Randy Couture. Now, I know he had been warned before. So, you know, for testing positive at UFC 34 against uh, Bobby Hoffman. But, um, you know, there wasn't none of none of the people really from the pride era that were champions in UFC really thrived after, 
you know, about 2007, 2008, when pride was absorbed and, and, and it be kind, kind of a more of a, a stringent drug testing level across the board. Um, once USADA kicked in pretty much everybody from that era, um, has faded away, um, from Vitor Belfort to, I mean, Chuck Liddell's career didn't end well, um, you know, Tito Ortiz, but I, I don't, I don't consider him a drug cheat. That guy passed probably as many tests as anybody else um, in the history of MMA. But, um, you know, it's just one of those things. I I think it's what, you know, if you're a UFC fan or you grew up in the watching MMA in the last 10 years, you, that's kind of one of your go-tos to try to try to act like the UFC was always the the top dog in in the world of MMA. Yeah. And, and, um, sorry, I don't know if you want to come in there, but, um, yeah, look, do you think as well, it's like, I think some of this comes back to just being a little bit self-critical. Like I think one of the problems with MMA sometimes in MMA fandom is, because it's been such a creation of the television era and because the UFC in particular has placed such a emphasis on its brand, um, people sometimes, um, you know, have a reluctance to be critical, you know, and I don't think that should be the case. I think that, you know, again, it's a sport, you know, um, it's something where people should be able to voice dissenting opinion and should be able to look at things critically. And yeah, for me, like, you know, like I said, there's plenty of other sports as well that have issues that are, that are people deny and, for MMA, yeah, those issues exist too. And I think we need to look at them critically and, and keep doing so. I think with Pride, it's a good example to look back on, I think, and say, okay, well, this is what it looked like when it was a bit more like the Well West. And, you know, truth be told, maybe that's not something we necessarily want to return to in that certain respect, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. I agree with that 100%. The um, the other thing too is uh, that I wanted to ask you was as far as your research and everything you did for the book, um, what, 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 what's one of the interviews or, or facts that you discovered that, that, that sat with you the most that made you think, Oh my God, I can't believe this happened. That that's in the book without doing any too much spoilers. But if you could just drop a hint or something, I mean that uh, just because of the, the whole history of the promotion, I think we all, Matt and I, especially uh, on, on our side of the globe, when we found out pride was, was uh, going to disappear, we were kind of like, how could this happen? You know? So I think two things. I think one would be in terms of in-ring stuff. Um, you know, I remembered uh, Boss Rutten, if it's, I think it's the Total Elimination 2003 card. Um, I, I can't quite remember, but it's the third It's the third fight between Sakurab and Silva. And during kind of a, a, a skit, um, you know, Boss Rutten says that Sakurab should probably retire if he gets knocked out, which, you know, is really, really kind of quite profound thing to say, I think, before a, before a fight, you know. Um, this guy yeah. should retire if he gets knocked out, you know, which is, in front of the boss, you know, he's a straight shooter. That's that's what his opinion was. And when I asked him when he said that, the reason why, and it's it's um it is up on social media, um this quote, like he said basically that he really liked Sakuraba. He thought he was a good guy, and he felt that he had been sort of milked somewhat. And like at that point, he would have fought Crow Cop. He would have fought like um I think he would have fought Randleman maybe as well at that stage. Like guys that were, you know, much bigger than him. Um and uh you know acquitted himself really well. I think a lot of those cases. Um, but he he was taking an awful lot of damage, you know. And I think that's one of those things where. Even the guy that was kind of basically their their golden goose and their biggest star, the fact that they couldn't treat him well, I think it's, you know, that that does say a lot, you know. Um, The second thing I think is, um, and one thing, again, that I'm quite proud of is the kind of the um, sort of explanation of what exactly happened towards the end of Pride. Yeah. I think it's fair to say that in business terms, you know, maybe it wouldn't have always been the most sustainable anyway, um, because it was such a, a supernova in Japan. You know, it became very hot very quickly. And then I think over time, particularly after, I think, um, the Fedor and Crow Cup fight, where, you know, they just discovered that Fedor really was 
just the best and, and probably no would be able to beat him. I think maybe there was, you could argue there would have been some fall off in interest, but, but really maybe what meant that there was no real transition towards something else or, or, or even a consolidation was um, the, just the, the crazy antics in terms of, and the crazy accusations that were flying about in terms of the involvement of Yakuza. I, I'm, I'm fair to say, I'm happy to say I, I'm, I'm, I don't know what happened. I'm not going to be, you can never truly say hand on heart that they know what happened. But there is certainly enough stuff there on the public record that suggests that, you know, it was a pretty, it was some pretty crazy business arrangements that, that happened. I think the most instructive thing to look at, and I summarize it in the book, is um, the UFC ordered a, uh, a due diligence report on Pride when they were purchasing the assets um, and attempting to purchase the, the, the uh, Dream Stage Entertainment, the, the holding company behind Pride. Mm-hmm. And basically just went through a lot of different issues just solely in terms of the actual, forgetting about the Yakuza stuff, but just the actual kind of due diligence uh, admin, administration that just really blew your mind, like um, the chief accountant resigning and then showing up at a meeting the next day and, and just stuff like that, you know, which for me, uh-huh. um, yeah, it just is really, really kind of crazy. So I think that that's interesting. And, and one or two people I've, I've sort of given a preview of the book have said, yeah, that really that was really interesting to me and that really illuminated for me. Because I think at the time, yeah, it's not it's not something people necessarily would have been able to take in. But I think over time now, and um, we have things like um, uh, the Mijadovic uh, interview, this is the Crow Cops former manager um, in 2012, I think it was with Spike TV, where he went through a few of the, the yeah. details. And there's a little more and more stuff now where I think we can reflect and, and write, you know, the history of the promotion and I think people can can look up look back on it and go wow you know that's that's what really happened or you know come to some approximation of, of what happened you know one of the things that uh I always thought was kind of led to the downfall of pride um when it all was said and done was the really the lack of of a of a uh, heavier weight uh Japanese champion um, other than Takanori Gomi, who uh, pretty much thrived on the Bushido uh, level for pride, um, it, you know, that's what led to a lot of the so-called like, you know, squash matches or kind of can matches is because, you know, it seemed like pride was always trying to get a Japanese fighter, even if they were nowhere near the level of the uh, the competition to try to win a, a title or, or beat it, beat one of the top uh, guys in, 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 in pride uh whether it was uh ogawa or or yoshida or uh you know takata you know i know uh i know atsuka beat uh beat marco huas early on but that was kind of before they were established and and that was another fight that was you know can be kind of looked at slightly questionable although huas says he was just really sick and shouldn't have been fighting anyway um do you, how what what do you think that played into it as far as never getting Sakuraba over the hill or not getting Yoshida getting that big win or you know not having anybody anywhere near the ballpark of uh, of Fedor you know when you got you know Fujita and, and guys like that. You know, I, I think if you look at the record of these guys, like uh, I think I would sort of single out I think Yoshida and Fujita in particular. I think Ogawa. His problem was, you know, the guys he beat weren't, you know, he, he wasn't able to really seriously beat anyone of any real weight. I think Yoshida, you know, um, sort of beat a few guys. Um, I think Don Fry actually at one point. And, um, you know, and Fujita also kind of had good victories over Mark Kerr and this kind of stuff. But none of them had the kind of what Sakuraba had, which was, A, obviously the series over the Gracies, but I think more importantly, like the, the victory over Hoist, like, which really put him over the top, I think. And just at that point, 
after that he could he could win or lose i wouldn't say more or less freely but he was a made kind of a made man from that point of view so yeah i think you're right it's 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 fujita and yoshida neither of them quite got the victory i think for yoshida that um that real moment was that first fight against silva um and actually asked bass Greeton about this and he said yeah look you know that that was the big win he needed and he didn't quite get it you know um, so I think that was a part of the problem, you know, was, um, and, and if you look at that fight, the, the crowd reactions are insane. Like the crowd is really going well for Yoshida. If you look at the rematch, yeah, they're still into it, but it's, I don't think they quite believe that he could win, you know? So I think that it's, it's one of those things where, um, it just didn't quite click. And the other thing as well is, and this goes back to kind of one thing I think mixed martial arts fans, I hope will get out of the book is, is the nature of, um, Japanese MMA and the fact that it did have such close relationships with pro wrestling where I think they were trying to construct stars, you know, like an Ogawa was someone, for instance, he had the Olympic experience just like Yoshida did, um, you know, uh, and, and they were ready-made stars that, you know, if they were serious that you could really launch them into the mainstream. But you know, someone like Sakuraba, who became probably, you know, he became their biggest star and he's going to be a happy accident because he left he was a high level college, you know, high school wrestler, but, you know, he wasn't, he didn't have that pedigree at all. And, and actually if you look at him, you know, he's a pretty laid back guy, you know, he's not especially, I would say like traditionally charismatic, um, but he does have a, a charisma in, in other ways. Um, that was the problem was I think that um, they were looking for a template for someone who could, who could make it big and they never quite found that person, you know, and um Part of that was because, you know, and, and actually Pride did admit this, and I think Asaka Hibara himself admitted this. That's the, the president of Pride from 2003 onwards and, and the current promoter of um, Ryzen. He did admit that, that you know, um, Sakurab was kind of a happy accident, you know, and um, they they got lucky with that. I think their big problem was, you know, they tried to build people and just didn't happen for various reasons, you know. The um the thing you mentioned just now about, about mixing uh, pro wrestling and, and, and MMA, I feel like that's still something that that an argument that comes up a lot i mean when you look at the recent uh with with daniel cormier and brock lesnar walking in the ring that's a lot of fighters are, are bringing that up too and, and mixing it up but it it's something that the formula works and if if pride started it then they should get credit for that but i mean you can say what you will about rankings and competition and stuff but the the fact of the matter is when it comes to the business side i mean the formula always works i mean look at the hype around that when it happened and uh, then you mentioned look at guys, guys like uh, uh, that tra- do a lot of trash talk, like like Conor McGregor, Colby Covington, all those guys. I mean, it's it's something that comes from from that that's from sports entertainment. So and and ultimately, it is entertainment for folks. I mean, not everybody trains, you know, not everybody, not everyone's getting, you know, uh, gets uh, those six degrees of separation between fighter and fan and stuff like like we do, but. It's still something that works. Um, one thing I, I, I want to ask your opinion, Lee, about is the um, – the uh, and Matt and I have talked about this on, on a, a lot of episodes. Uh, what do you think about when, when the UFC, you know, bought the, the pride of, from uh, Dream Stage and when they fell apart, why didn't they keep, uh, like, the themes and everything going? Me and Matt always mention, like, why didn't you just still, still keep using the logos, keep using the – you know, the music or something. I mean, the, I think the best thing we got was when they fought in Japan and Rampage walked into the Pride music. That was the closest nostalgia. Like, why didn't they bank on the nostalgia of Pride fans being that they bought them? What, what was your opinion on how the, how the uh, purchase was handled? I mean, I think the, the, the record is, is pretty clear on why they didn't continue um, 
to keep Pride as a going concern in Japan um, was because they had difficulties getting TV deals. Um, the staff, I think there was issues with cooperation from the staff, even after Saki Barry left. Um, and, and Dana White, you know, said a lot of comments like to the effect of, you know, they don't want me over there. They don't want another mixed martial arts promotion over there. Um, so I think that's why they didn't keep it alive in that sense. Yeah, I think keeping the um, the brand and keeping the the sort of, if you were like kind of reconstituting Pride, whether it's, you know, in somewhere like Macau or whether it would be somewhere in the United States or what have you. Um, yeah, look, I mean, I think that, that could be something that could happen um, when they would be sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of competing with themselves or that kind of thing. But, you know, I think only they can answer that. And my honest opinion, I think, is, and they've admitted that the WWF was a big um, uh, template for them. If you look at it, and, and this is, again, something I say in the book, they've acquired, they acquired all different promotions, you know, stuff like Strikeforce. I mean, even Strikeforce, you could argue they probably could have kept going because they had a pretty good, pretty good uh, exposure. Yeah. Um, but it was all to, um, I think, build UFC as the brand. That was what they wanted to do. Um, I think it also, it, it kind of was a case of removing leverage from fighters. So they only had one real viable place to go and, um, you know, subsuming everything into, into the UFC. And, now that's what they you know that's what they do that's what they do and i think that's why it's such a viable property and such an amazing property because they have done what you know boxing can't do whereas they have a sport that's basically you know in, entirely within their remit and within their control certainly at the professional level so i think that's that's two reasons why i think one because in japan it wasn't really viable and two because their goal has been always been to to build the ufc brand and and that's what's gotten them that's what made the Fertitas very rich and what's made Dana White very rich. And, um, you know, that's, uh, you can't argue with the results, I guess. And that's, yeah. you jumping back to the pro wrestling thing real quick. Um, you know, most people know that the pride kind of came off the heels of, of the UWF and, uh, and Pancras. Um, did you come across, you know, and the pro wrestling in Japan at those times is a lot different than the pro wrestling you know, I'm no I'm no expert on on Japanese pro wrestling, but everything I've seen, it's it's much different than what we we see today um, in WWE. Um, you know, guys like Minoru Suzuki, um, I think even Ken Shamrock did did it. Uh, Don Fry. I mean, you had real martial artists and a, and a much more competitive kind of pro wrestling match um, as far as you know, legit looking strikes and and submission holds and. Um, it wasn't all just the classic Roddy Piper sleeper hold and, and stuff like that, that, you know, kind of was going on at the same time in the United States. Um, when I trained, I mentioned, I trained with Mark Hall, uh, who was one of the early UFC pioneers. Um, he competed when, when I was training with him, he would fly to Japan and compete in an event called kingdom. Um, it was kingdom pro wrestling. Um, and I have a couple, uh, bootleg tapes where he has matches against Sakuraba and Yoji Anjo and, and um, I think Matt Anthony Macias might be in some of them. And I, I, it's been so long. Did you come th – that's one organization where there's very, very little information on. Um, I think there's maybe a half a paragraph in Wikipedia about that. Did you come across uh, that organization at all in your research? Um, not so much Kingdom. And the reason why maybe I didn't pay as much attention to Kingdom as, as maybe I, I should have was I think it had a very short uh, lifespan. And it was founded by, um, by Takada and his crew after um, – after the fall of the what would have been the third UWF or UWFI, um, are you guys getting an echo? By the way, I'm getting a slight one, but can you hear it now? No, no. No. Okay. Cool. 
Awesome, sorry. Um, yeah, no, Kingdom I, I wouldn't be certain on, but Kingdom was certainly a continuation of that UWF style. Um, the, the whole the whole sort of it, and, and again, um, the, the early chapters of the book, I do spend a lot of time talking about the different promotions that came out because what happened in Japan was you had a tension between people that sort of wanted to do pro wrestling for real by either which I mean use legitimate moves with fixed outcomes or actually transition to entirely sort of, um, um, uh, you know, shoot matches with pro wrestling skills. I think that came from the influence of, um, in Japan, basically, you had a belief that the toughest guys in the world came from um, uh, Wigan uh, and the snake pit and catch wrestling. So guys like um, Billy Robinson, Carl Gotch, um, these kind of guys, that was who that they saw were kind of, and part of it, I think, came from Anoki because um, Antonio Anoki, um, you know, obviously Japanese uh, pro wrestling um, uh, legend, he introduced these guys as people he would go up against and kind of fight because that was his mentality was pro wrestling needed to be as real as it could be. Um, so that was the genesis of it for a lot of it. And then in the eighties, what you had was a lot of the new generation really wanting to um, get into that reality based sort of professional wrestling. Whereas there was an obvious tension between sort of what you would understand as kind of being entertainment based wrestling. And even, even that style is kind of different to what we'd understand in, in WWF uh, then or now. So, um, yeah, the UWF had a real, had a real um, impact, I think, on on the whole rise of Pride. And at the very start of um, the very start of the of the book, what I do is I, I sort of bring the traditions of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and I think more broadly speaking, kind of catch wrestling and and Japanese wrestling. And the very first Pride was a collision of the two. And um, yeah, that's kind of I think a narrative that really kind of you know, w w was one that interested me, I think, and, and that's what the, what what form the book takes. Um, but yeah, Kingdom was really interesting, and it was a continuation of the UWF style. And actually, to be honest, there's a few calls now. Um, Josh Barnett has made a few sort of rumblings about it, and I think um, Davy Boy Smith Jr., who's the British Bulldogs, um, yeah. and so on, they've talked about... <laughs> My headphones have gone, guys. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I, I can hear you. I, I can hear you. Okay. Cool. But um, one, but, um of, one, of, one of the things. Oh, I'm not getting back though. Yeah, okay. All right. Let me see. Um, um, um yeah. They unplugged. Oh. Yeah, I'm still here. Okay. Uh, one of the things I wanted. One of the things. Have, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Uh, okay. So okay. One of the things I wanted so to ask you was um, the uh, the you mentioned Ryzen. The, uh, I always refer to Ryzen as the new pride. Um, what do you think about the guys that can that that have carried over? I mean, obviously, like uh, Crow Cop just got announced. He's fighting in, on September 30th, I think, over at, at Ryzen 13, and it's obviously a lot of the same people running uh, Ryzen now uh, that were involved with Pride. I mean, do you think sometimes uh, like Oh, like Jake Ellenberger just retired last night. Do you think people with the, when their records hit the thirties and stuff that as far as like the, the accumulated wins, do you think guys like Crow Cop and all these guys that are still that coming over from the pride era still fighting in rising now should hang it up or is, is it, is it a, a detriment to the sport or, or, or something to be admired? still? I mean, I, I can't help but get excited when those guys fight, but I'm, I'm nostalgic like that. Um, yeah. I mean, um, 
look, I think there's a distinction here between what should happen and maybe what does happen. And, um, you know, uh, I, I, I think I'm in the same boat as you was, yeah, it does, it does interest and um, some of these guys, but, you know, um, like I, th- I think really when we look at it, we, we look at the likes of sort of Gary Goodridge or Mark Coleman who, who physically are in very poor health. Um, and look, part of it was that they, they did fight too long. Um, I think for Ryzen, um, and yeah, if you see the likes of, um, I went to a card actually in 2017 and Quokop was fighting on it. Fujita was on it. Um, the real sort of amazing one for me was Heath Herring fought because he was stepping in as a last minute replacement for Roy Nelson. And he hadn't fought in maybe six or seven years. And he got an incredible reaction from the crowd. So I think it's a problem where the real issue is, and, and Frank Craig, who, who comments on, on Rice and said this, you know, um, part of the problem, I think, is um, some of the new stars, uh, finding them and having them train in Japan and become stars in Japan is a real challenge for the promotion, you know. And I think in an ideal world, they would be able to transition away from those guys. Um but they feel like that, you know, they feel like they probably can't, they can't, you know, they can't quite do that. Look, for me, I think I, I would be okay with, with you know, kind of new guys coming along and, and taking up the mantle. But yeah, look, it's it's a problem where the guys you grew up with are always the ones you remember the most fondly. And to be honest, like it's something Bellator maybe is doing as well, where Bellator have some really great fighters, people that are in their prime, um, you know, whether it's, it's, uh, it's like Savory McDonald or what have you. Um, but, you know, they're also, you know, they're, they're relying on some of the older guys as well, like the likes of Vanderlei or Rampage, who, yeah, to be frank, I don't think probably should be fighting. Um, but that's what draws too. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a should. They, should. they shouldn't really be doing it. But like I said, MMA is about spectacle. It is about excitement. It is about buzz. And, you know, as long as that's the case, that, you know, we will see people fight for too long. You know, they'll fight for longer than they have to, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the uh you just mentioned Fedor. The, uh what do you think about Fedor fighting in Bellator's heavyweight tournament? I mean that that's part of that nostalgia. Yeah, I mean the the incredible thing is like on the one hand, he, he kind of has a pretty decent record for the last few years, which is kind of crazy. Like you know, whether it's the Matrion fight or these kind of things where look, yeah, he'll lose a few. Um he'll get some victories too, and, and really he's he's able to push guys and, and I'm actually kind of intrigued by this fight. You know, I think uh, Chael, Chael said that he keeps, you know, and one of the reasons why I think he was able to be Vanderlei was Chael has kept training, you know, into his 40s. Um, whereas I think, I think Vanderlei has, and, and you look at someone like Rampage, I think it's fair to say that, you know, Rampage wasn't in the best physical shape either. Um, with this, it's a really interesting one where it's who is degraded down the worst, you know, and, and what for sort of physical shape are they in? I know it's, it's, it's awful and it's terrible to have to factor that in, but that's where I think the intrigue does come from a fight like this. But obviously once this fight is done, then that's it. You know, I think you're just into every more diminishing returns, you know, and uh, it's certainly something I'm going to be interested in, but, you know, I think it's at that point, it probably is time to, to, for both of them, maybe to, to look at calling it a day, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned, you mentioned, there you go. Uh, you mentioned that um, you uh, you went to you got to go to a Ryzen show. Um, I I was lucky enough to go to Pride Thirty Two uh, here in the U.S. when actually uh, Fedor was the headliner. Um, did you ever get a chance to go to any Pride shows um, during their time? Uh, no, I was uh, I was in college actually for the U.S. shows, and I would have been far too young, I think, for the initial Japanese shows. I was be 15 or 16 when I first found that first pride tape of the 2011 Grand Prix 
Um, so unfortunately, no, I never, I never got to attend. But um, yeah, certainly the Bryson show I was at. I mean, the entrances, the initial, um, the initial uh, setup. Um, you know, Lena Hart's uh, introductions, all these things. You know, that was just like I'd seen on TV, you know, and that, that was really amazing for me. So although I didn't get to see, you know, the stars in their prime, I felt like I could go to a pride show because it, it clearly mirrors so many different elements of, of pride there, you know. One of the uh, the things that, that pride was trying to push, uh, I think it was about 2006, about a year before they closed, was bringing in uh, Mike Tyson. Um, I know uh, there had also been rumors of him fighting in K1 against Bob Sapp. Um, I think they even met in the middle of the ring and had a face off. And oh yeah, I remember um, that. <laughs> you know, they were, they were kind of pushing that idea, and then and then Pride kind of became rumored to to be bringing in him, and he's not he's not eligible to fight in Japan uh, because of his criminal record. So they were talking about doing it uh, in China. Um, do you know Do you know much about that? Was Do you know if that was ever actually close to to coming to fruition? Uh uh, these specific instances, I, I couldn't say. I know K one like really tried tried very hard to get him at various points. I think we're quite close. Obviously, maybe at that point where there was a face off. Um, but one thing that absolutely happened was Mike Tyson. Pretty much from Takada onwards was a reoccurring theme in Japan. So Takada claimed that he could beat Mike Tyson, um, and then after that, you had various points where, for instance, uh, at one point I believe um, Hoist came over to hold a press conference before Pride One. This is when there was a bit of a split between Hickson and um, uh, Horion, um, who was managing Hoist at the time. And um, they claimed that they would have a, they challenged Mike Tyson to a fight as well. Um, K1 obviously consistently did it. When Mark Hunt wanted to go to Pride, um, K1 offered him Mike Tyson. Um, yeah, at various points, he, he was, he's the real white whale, I think it's fair to say, of, um, of, uh, of, of Japanese MMA and Japanese pro wrestling, where his name has just continuously been invoked. Um, and uh, yeah, so I can't say it was ever close. Um, you know, I think uh, I, I didn't get much more information on that, unfortunately, but I do know that it's something that's consistently tried down through the years, whether it was by Pride or by K1 to, to try to get him interested and try to get him in there. You know. All right. Uh, the, cool. Uh, so we're, we're about to wind, wrap it up here, but I uh, just wanted to let you, thank you so much for coming on and uh, let, why don't you let folks know where uh, we can follow the progress of the book uh, the link for the Indiegogo is going to be in the YouTube description as well as the podcast description. But uh, just let folks know where we can uh, keep up with the progress and where they can pick it up and when it, the official release date and stuff like that. Cool. So, yeah, right now we're running an Indiegogo campaign. Um, the reason why is because um, we have a professional illustrator who's done some really cool images for the book. So we've got to pay him. We've got to pay the fees and like that, um, as well as the fact that we wanted to sort of give people a chance to, to get it a bit earlier and also to get a unique copy of the book. Um, each copy of the book that's on the Indiegogo will have a cover exclusive to the Indiegogo campaign. And we've also got some other cool rewards um, in terms of like, you know, custom made illustrations, prints from the book, um, you know, signed copies of the book, that kind of stuff as well. Um, you know, it's 10 euro for the ebook. It's uh, 20 euro for the hard copy. And you can see the various other tiers there. The place to go to is beforeafallbook.com. Uh, right now, we're 33% funded. We've got about another two weeks to go. Um, these things pick up towards the end. I'm pretty confident that they'll get there. But obviously, um, I have said it is an all-or-nothing campaign, so I don't get the 5K unless we reach 5K. So if people are able to, to donate and to uh, support, I, I really appreciate it. And like I said, people get some pretty awesome rewards for that. So it's beforeafallbook.com. The Twitter handle is beforeafallbook. The Facebook is also beforeafallbook as well. So pretty easy to remember. Cool. 
Well, uh, again, thanks so much for coming on. I really do appreciate it. I don't know, if, uh, Matt, you want to close with anything with Mr. Daly before we're done? No, I mean, it's been great having you on. Um, you know, getting a chance to talk about the history of Pride is, uh, you know, something that, you know, we always talk about wanting to do and um, getting the opportunity is cool. You know, it's, it's one of those things where it's nostalgia for me and, uh, you know, one of the, you know, for for a five or six year span was one of the funnest times I've ever had being a fan of the sport was bouncing between UFC and pride. So really appreciate you coming on and um, hopefully everything goes well with the book and uh, actually look forward to reading it and um, gaining some more knowledge on, uh, on one of the greatest uh, sports organizations of all time, in my opinion. Thanks guys. Really appreciate it. Um, Really, really great conversation. And thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for coming. Um, just for folks listening on, the, uh, please follow us on, uh, at combat hour on Twitter. You can follow Matt at, at MMA Hawk 21. I'm Car Basil. And, uh, thank you again. Sunday, special Sunday edition of the coast to coast combat hour. Thank you all for tuning in.